Hello and welcome back to the Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Remy. And this week, we're going on a journey to a town that doesn't exist. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) That could be any town in probably the Pacific Northwest. We watched David Lynch's Blue Velvet, and that's what we're going to talk about today. That's number 97 on the AFI's Top Thrills list. Before we get into it, though, how was your week? Um, my week was actually a little bit better. I'm feeling better. I'm preparing for the. I'm preparing for a surgery next week. Yes. The day this episode drops, you will be out of surgery already. All right. So uh, we are doing a little bit of a pre-record, and hopefully, we'll get one more in before you go under the knif. Yeah, it's it's very uh, strange. I I got sent a box in the mail. Yep. With all these sort of doodads and gadgets in it, and a bottle of carbonated something or other. Yeah, it's not carbonated. I don't think. I think it's carbohydrate. Oh. Okay. I think that's the carb in it, but I could be wrong because they make you only drink half if you're diabetic. That's what makes me. Think well, that. yeah. So <laughs> I am supposed to put that in the refrigerator. It's it's almost like um one of the. One of the assignments in the old Mission Impossible. I got a video message, right, or a message um, through my phone or my computer, actually. And uh, you're supposed to go in, take a shower before you go to the the surgeon. And then after your shower, you have to rub yourself down with a a particular cream. It's not a cream. I believe it is. Is it a cream? Is there a cream in addition to the wipes? Um, Oh, no, no. They're wipes. I'm sorry. And then there's the... Uh, it's like a sheet mask for your whole body. Right, which is weird. <laughs> it is. And then there's take the carbon carbonated drink or carbon carbohydrate drink. Yeah. Carbonara, whatever it is. Right. Take it out of the refrigerator and uh, drink it. Only drink half of it if you're diabetic, which I'm not, thank God. Yeah. Drink all of it, otherwise... In 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like... You, and then... You're and ready then to go. go to the hospital. Then the the I love the we did a webinar about spine surgery yesterday from Kaiser, and they were like, so if your report time or if your surgery time is ten a.m. No, if your surgery time is eight a.m., then right. your report to the hospital time is six a.m. and you have to drink this drink at four a.m. Right. And I'm like, that's cruel. And that's <laughs> they're very precise about it, and so. Um, yeah, it just made me think while I was sitting here watching that uh, seminar. Oh, there's so much more to this than I thought there was. I thought it was going to be relatively easy or something, but I mean, yes, you have you have got some homework to do before we go in, but mm. hopefully once it's in, it is you're in, it is relatively easy. And we're very excited to um to hear that as of like last week, uh-huh. they've opened visiting hours back up, so right. we will be able to come see you in the hospital. Maybe bring you your phone because you're not allowed to bring electronics in, uh, and um, and that gives me some peace of mind because we were not allowed to see right. you at all last time the last was really, time. Really, really, um, was really difficult because I couldn't see anybody for the entire length of my visit. Yeah, and so I was in isolation, and people were texting me and trying to find out what was going on yeah. with me, and they didn't know because I just disappeared off the map. Yeah. So uh, hopefully it'll be an easier visit this time. Right. Well, and also you stayed so long because they didn't know what was wrong, and now they know what is wrong. So hopefully you'll only be there for 
Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And we'll hopefully get you back either on Friday or on Saturday. Yeah, hopefully the sooner the better. And I'll start having um, a better time of things, too. Yes. Which is what I'm really hoping for. Yes. Yeah. How was your week? Uh, It was good. It's been busy. I've been doing, at minimum, four things at a time uh, between the hours of, like, 7 a.m. and 7 Uh p.m. And then turning my brain off and trying to not think at all and do anything between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. Oh. So it's not working. It's not. I'm not right. successful at that, but um, I am going out of town this weekend to visit another friend who is also dealing with some health issues before you go undergo your surgery, and I'm looking forward to that. Two whole days where I will only have to do one thing at a time. It's exciting. It's thrilling. Uh, but I'm just, I'm looking forward to getting to the other side of this and getting you healing, healing, healing. Well, thank you. And, and thank you for all of your help. Normal. She's been very helpful. She has, my other roommate, Stephanie, has been very helpful. Um, and they've both actually just, yeah, been really supportive and everything. So I appreciate them. We're doing it. Okay. Uh, addendum to my previous sentence about where this falls on the list. This is number 90. Six, number 96 on the list of okay. top thrills. Uh, David Lynch's Blue Velvet. We started... Now, how do you feel about David Lynch, just to give everyone an idea going in? That's what I want to talk about. So we started this podcast watching Twin Peaks because I'd never seen it. Right. And I was like, yeah, that's a, it's a cultural blind spot that I literally knew nothing about. It, I didn't know anything through osmosis. Um, no, I don't even think I knew the cherry pie thing. Uh... I did not enjoy it. I had only ever seen Mulholland Drive and Lost Highways, uh-huh. and one scene from this movie. You were wrong about the scene, by the way. Uh, when we were watching it, he's like, it must have been this one, and it wasn't that one. It was a later one. We'll get to it. Uh, but um, this is the first David Lynch experience that I've ever had where at the end I was like, give me, well, I wasn't like, give me my time back. I want my time back. Right. So that's positive. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, like, I appreciate David Lynch. I appreciate the man that he is. He's a weird dude. I like that he makes the movies that he makes. And I like that I have the option to not watch them. Right. <laughs> I'll watch a trailer for a David Lynch film and be like, great, so glad that's there for the people who want it. Next, I am not a huge fan of surrealism. In film, particularly. And a lot of that has to do with... And I don't think I've ever read much surrealist literature. Um, I I don't hate surrealist art. That is a thing that I I do, I can enjoy. But my problem with surrealist film typically is... I, I watch enough genre film that has to create the worlds of its like create the rules of its world that I need that to be the underpinning of any movie that I watch that isn't in the world that I know and surrealism is not interested in that they're going to give you a totally foreign world view and not tell you at all what the rules are and just let you you know 
flounce about in that for two hours and then come out and be like, so how's that feel? And I'm like, bad. It feels bad to me. I don't like it. My, I, I think had I had an introduction to David Lynch that was more like yours, I probably would have less respect for him. Um, and I don't have a lack of right, respect no, no, for no, him. But as a filmmaker, because mm. it's like, this is really weird. Lost Highway, the character just turns into another character or something. Mm. Although I do like... Um, I read Robert Aikman, the English writer, who does a lot of sort of ghost stories that have no real beginning or end. Mm-hmm. Things just sort of happen and you're in the middle of the circumstance and mm-hmm. people get frustrated at it, but it's like I like the uh, the sort of sensation of dislocation that you get from his writing. And David Lynch captures that really well. Yeah. Um, dislocation is... A sense of dislocation is a strong... Like, that's very accurate to David Lynch's work. Yeah. So... My first David Lynch film I saw was Elephant Man. Oh, I've never seen... And that's more of a linear narrative. That is a linear, straightforward uh, narrative. It's black and white, though, right? it was done black and white. Okay. And it was just really beautifully done and acted. And I saw that for a literature class, I guess, at at, uh, Shiloh. Interesting. So while you were in school? While I was in school, yeah. Like uh, high school? So it was... And that made me want to see more of what he did. Mm-hmm. Because it was really strange, and uh, and the black and white footage of the of an industrial age London, along with all these people who are sort of like just cogs in a machine, mm-hmm. and so it really played the film out really mm-hmm. the the metaphor out really well. Mm-hmm. And he does that here too. Yeah. And so I'm looking at it going, oh, but he also he yeah he this film I think. Is one of his more straightforward narratives. Yes. And he had been apparently shopping it around for a while, trying to get it uh, made since the 1970s, and it wasn't getting done because it was... Well, I think part of it was when he started with the idea, apparently Mm -hmm. he pictured, or like he started with a feeling and that song. And and, and I'm like, well, nobody's going to give you money for that, dude. Like, you need to be a little bit more... uh, concrete with it give me a script at the very least even if it doesn't make any sense uh so let's start with the song okay uh which i'd never heard before actually and we hear multiple times sung by uh dorothy valens played by isabella rossellini frank sings it too at one point and then yes frank sings it yeah and i believe that there's also a cover Mm. that's done and maybe even the original bobby vinton version of it this that's the song that's in this all of this movie Mm -hmm. every time we see her singing at a nightclub and that's what she does for a living y'all she sings at a nightclub it's that song song. how do you feel about that song it's i can't hear it anymore i know that you have an aversion to uh, singing in the rain. I do because of because of Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange, and ever since I saw this one, I this That's this song you know. yeah. makes me cringe. I and maybe that is my I don't like this song, uh-huh. but I don't know if I would have liked it if I'd heard it outside of the context right. of this first, and then this ruined it for me. Yeah, but I don't. First of all, I don't. I don't think the lyrics are very good. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I was like, did David Lynch write these lyrics? Because they're not. They're not good. <laughs> Like I just don't yeah. like them. So um, that was a that was a that was a problem, problem for, for me. So let's get into the plot then. Okay. Let's start with um, we've got a baby Kyle McLaughlin 
Kind of baby everybody except yes. for Dennis Hopper, really. Well, and he was kind of a baby, too, for, for him. So Kyle MacLachlan uh, is a perennial favorite of uh, mm. Mr. Lynch. They work together dozens of times. <laughs> I mean, really, <laughs> dozens of times because he was in Twin right. Peaks, right? So um, his very first movie was Dune. Yeah. His second movie is Blue Velvet. So they have a very, you know, Depp Burton. Right. Very simpatico. Yes. Uh, And I asked you guys, do you think he is at all put out by the fact that he worked so closely with David Lynch and may have gotten typecasted? But I'm looking at his filmography and he works consistently so i should shut up well i mean we just i was surprised when we saw him in agents of shield the other day uh, uh last year was it or a year before good lord the last couple of years have become such a smush since the pandemic but right he was playing a character and i thought oh this is not an art film this is not something abstract he's in a marvel series yeah Yes, that's correct. And he was he was actually very good in it. The guy who can't control his rage. Yes. Um and he is in the upcoming they're doing another Fletch okay. movie without Chevy Chase. They're doing it with John Hamm oh. as the Fletch character and he is going to be in that. So that he is still consistently working. So yeah, it was pretty silly of me. I mean, he did Sex and the City. He was in The Good Wife. Like, mm. I mean, he he's been in a lot of television as well as mm. consistently working in film. So that's Kyle McLaughlin. He is playing Jeffrey Beaumont, who's referred to as Jeffrey, not Jeff, a zillion times in this movie. Jeffrey, 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 Jeffrey. Oh, Jeffrey, Jeffrey. My secret lover. That's the other thing he's referred to. <laughs> so it doesn't turn out good for him. Uh, so he is our star, star. He is our protagonist. He is the eyes through which we view this film. Uh, the He is in a weird love triangle that's not really a love triangle between a tiny baby Laura Dern, who is 17 when this movie is being made, or so. Uh... Just all fine bones and blonde hair. Uh, I was like, is this like her first thing? No, y'all, she was a child actress that I did not realize about. So she'd been working for a cool decade. So she was the the veteran actor in these t- <laughs> in this pair, and she is six years younger than Kamala yeah. Clarkson. Uh, she'd uh, been in Mask just before. Uh-huh. She started in. White Lightning is uh, a, as an uncredited role. There's a film called Sweet Talk. Okay. Yes. She did Smooth for, Talk. Smooth Talk. Yes. I'm sorry. Uh, the Treat Williams that she did for PBS. And it was based on a short story by Joyce Carol Oates. Oh, yes, indeed. And it was that was the first time I saw her. And she was playing a girl who's just discovered that her long legs and her slim waist attract the opposite sex. Cool. And then she attracts the attention of Treat Williams, who's an older, like a man. Right, right? like a grown-ass man. And right. she, it was really strange, because I, I, you know, 
American Playhouse, I never got to watch a lot of that when I was uh, uh, young. Because, you know, we, had, we were one television household when I was a kid. When we got two TVs, though, I would sneak off to my room and watch what I pleased. And that was one of the first shows I saw. Mm. And it was really interesting because I didn't understand female sexuality from the point of view of a woman. But, it's, well, no, because you're not supposed to. Right. It's a secret. And so... And if any woman tries to tell you about female sexuality, she's a harlot. Right. <laughs> Don't listen to whores, my son. That was... Yes. You know, like, but, uh, but yeah, that was a really eye-opening film because I thought, oh my God, they're just as freaked out by all of this too. Yes. And also, they like the things that you like. Like... It, mm. Right. <laughs> and the other half of the... Or well, the other third of this love triangle that is not a love triangle. It's a little bit of a sex triangle, but it is not a love triangle. Is Isabella Rossellini as Dorothy Valens, uh, a tragic masochist who is caught up in... I don't even know how to well, describe it. We'll get into the, right. the nitty-gritty. At the time of this film, she was known for Lancome ads. Right. She was not an actress yet. Yeah. And the fact that her mother was Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> like, also that. She, yeah, there's a... And after this movie came out, her agents dropped her. Really? Yeah, because garbage. <laughs> yeah. Because this, is, this is an extremely controversial... This movie would be controversial now. Right. And this was released in 1986. Yeah. Right in the middle of the Reagan... Yeah. Presidency. And it is really casting a shadow on that president. Like, mm-mm, underneath the shiny, yeah. it's gritty, it's gross, it's filthy. Which is the first image that we get. Mm-hmm. Well, second, but yeah. Yeah, we see... Um, yeah, so this movie, uh, let's start well, Yeah, let's start with the very beginning. Right. We see a man, He's is he mowing his lawn? Or, yeah. Yeah, he's mowing his lawn, and he does... I don't know what happened. He has some sort of... Attack? Yeah. I was like, was he shot with a dart in the neck? Like, I didn't understand what was, or right. stung by a bee. I didn't understand what happened to him, but he fell to the ground. And then we do find out later that that is Kyle McLaughlin's father. Uh-huh. Um, but he falls to the ground, and then we get a close-up to the grass next to him, down, 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 underneath, and we see all these roiling beetles. Right. And that is the first inkling that this, you know, bucolic scene that we've, we're seeing is like a facade. Right. right. And, and the outside of the town, too, it really does look like the Reagan-era dream town. It does. Know. It's called Lumberton, right. where lumber comes from. I was wrong. Apparently, it has a real... It's in North Carolina. Really? Yes, unless it's... See, like, in the references to it, it doesn't list, it doesn't list uh, Blue Velvet. So I'm wondering if somebody got the wrong uh, uh-huh. attribution inside, because it felt to me like, so I do, I play uh, tabletop board games, and uh, we play these this version of game called Worker Placement Games, where you put your worker out and you get the thing at the place where the worker is. Right. And, and in a lot of these games, one of the locations you can put a worker at is a resource gathering place. And this feels like the place on the board where all the wood comes from. Their radio station is W-O-O-D. Like, it felt like 
this amalgamation of lumber towns in either the Pacific Northwest or the East, uh, the East Northeast, okay. like Maine, right. um, or Vermont, right? A place where what's there is wood, <laughs> and everyone there has something to do with wood, or feeding, or housing, or caring for the people who are getting all the wood. <laughs> it's like a mine town or something like that. Um, but maybe it is North Carolina. It's not North Carolina. So I can't be sure, but Lumberton. Right. And Jeffrey Beaumont, our Kyle McLaughlin, has returned home to help out his father because, oh, he had a stroke, apparently. It's a near-fatal stroke. We see him go and visit his father in the hospital, and he is hooked up similar to the way that you are hooked up. He's got, like, a whole harness situation. He's got a tube in his throat. He right. can't speak. Like he has to, he has like a tracheotomy situation. He's attached to all of these, you know, cables and wires and machines. He's up and he can communicate. He's conscious, he's but aware. he is gonna be in that bed yeah. for a while. And as he, so we see him visiting his father, and then we see him walking home. He's cutting through a vacant lot, and he finds an ear. And that is the second thing that came to David Lynch after the song and a feeling. It was the image of the ear in the in the grass in the field, and he didn't. He, he it specifically had to be an ear because he wanted it to be an opening into the body, and the ear goes directly into the mind. So it's perfect. I'm like, well, the ear doesn't. It go. That's not <laughs> okay, David Lynch. Sure. How many drugs do you think David Lynch has done? Not as many as uh, Dennis Hopper. We'll get there, y'all. Um, and so he does scoop that ear up, put it in a paper bag, and take it to the police station. Now, it does seem like he may be studying forensics or something along those lines. Like, he wants to go into being a police. Mm-hmm. And the police detective is remarkably um, eager to include this child, I mean, he's at college, so he's not you technically know, right. a child, but yeah. for all intents and purposes, this is a child, uh, in his investigation, <laughs> let's take this ear to the morgue, and then you're going to take me to where you found it. And I'm just like, mm, is he going to go to the morgue with you and ask questions? What? That well, seems seem... to be very... I, I think the thing is, he's... I, I believed at that point that he's looking to groom a replacement. Some, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe himself. he knows he's out studying. He'll come back, right. and then he'll be the police. Then he goes. I believe at one point he does go to the officer's home with like further information. No, to follow up to say, "Hey, did you find anything else about right. that ear?" And guess what? He's not entitled to that information, y'all. You can't just. I, I see this on a lot of shows and stuff where women who give a tip or whatever want to call the police to find out what the resolution was. And I'm right. like, you don't actually, no, you're not you entitled to that information. <laughs> that is somebody else's personal information. But here's the awesome thing. Kyle McLaughlin, beautiful baby face. You know who else has a beautiful baby face? Detective Williams' daughter, Sandy, Laura Dern, so beautiful, and also does eavesdrop on her dad because his office is below her bedroom, so she has scoops. And they go walking together, 
of the freshest-faced couple you've ever seen in your life. And she says that the ear somehow relates to a lounge singer named Dorothy Valens. And Jeffrey enlists Sandy for some light beanie <laughs> by going to where I think he probably was like, a, he used to work maybe mm-hmm. like a hardware store with, I think my favorite side characters are double Ed. Right. It's just two dudes named Ed. One of them is blind. I'm using quotation marks because I feel like he's got a real Stevie Wonder vibe where people are like, I don't think he's really blind. I think he's just... Yeah. (laughs) Because he, like, knows how many uh, fingers he holds up and things like that. I thought this was his dad's hardware store. It might be. I'm unclear. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. Sure. Because he said he he had been dealing with double Ed since he was a kid. Yes. And, and he's able to cite the prices for them and everything. That's he, true. So, yeah, that might be his dad's yeah. his dad's store. That makes sense, like the family business. Yeah. Um, It's never concretely said. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's Beaumont Lumber or whatever. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I, I didn't catch that, but it's, that's entirely possible. Because, yeah, he had a very... Well, either that or he'd been working there until he, yeah. since he was 13 or whatever, and... And it's the only hardware store, so of course his his fa- like he knows yeah. these guys because they're, you just deal with your hardware store in a small town. Uh, he goes and he scoops up some uh, bug control things, and he's like, "I'm gonna just take these. Is that cool?" And they're like, "Yeah, do whatever you want." <laughs> and he uh, and Sandy go to the club that Dorothy sings in to make sure that she's there, I guess. I think that was the point, and then he becomes kind of entranced by Dorothy. And, yeah, and she sings Blue Velvet, and I think this song has bad lyrics. And then they do leave, drive to her apartment where the elevator is broken, and Sandy stays outside. See, he tries to say, you go you go home now. And she's uh-huh. like, no, 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 I'm going to stay here in your ostentatious, red, convertible, massive vehicle. And I'm going to honk when she gets here, if she gets here before you come down, so that you aren't trapped in there. Good plan. It, he's just an idiot. She's the, she's the brains of this operation, 100%. So he goes into the building with his donning his extermination thing because he's mm-hmm. like, well, I'll just... Oh, no. He, the exterminator thing happens first. He goes in earlier because he, he, he's going to go in as an exterminator when she's home. Right. He, she's going to let him in and he's then Sandy's going to follow up, open the... Or, you know, have her open the door, distract her, and um, Kyle McLaughlin or Jeffrey is going to jimmy a window so they can break in. He right. can break in later. But he finds some keys. And also, a big dude in a yellow suit comes instead of Sandy and does do the distracting. It, it, it works. It's not the plan, but it works. So he does exterminate. She sees him. He does a little, you know, extermination in her kitchen. She is so put out. <laughs> <laughs> by the fact that there is a person in her apartment. It's pretty hilarious. But under the 
kitchen counter where I would presume you would put a dishwasher, but there isn't a dishwasher. Yeah, there's a, it's just a big open space underneath yeah, the counter. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't figure out what that was for. I, I, I feel like it's where you would slide a yeah. dishwasher in. Like um, there was that space in your mom's place where right. a dishwasher would be slotted in if you had a dishwasher. And uh, he does yoink those keys and does get going. Now keep in mind, we've got a, this is an ongoing thing for this whole movie, which takes place over the course of like three days or something. Like this whole movie doesn't yeah. take very long, right? Uh, she lives on the seventh floor of a building that looks like it's four stories tall. And the elevator's broken, so they do have to go up all of the stairs every time. And so he gets out of there. He he nicknames this big man that came to check on her, the mm-hmm. yellow man. So that's keep that in your brains, kiddos. And then that's when they go, after he's got the keys, they go to see the nightclub act. She sings the songs. They have a bud or whatever, and then they leave. And she's gonna sit out. Sandy's gonna sit outside across the street and make sh- and like, keep a lookout. And then she's gonna honk one, two, three, four. If Dorothy shows up, oh, that's a good idea. Kyle McLaughlin says because he's an idiot who didn't think about this beforehand. And he goes up all the stairs again. Does get knocks on the door. No answer. Does go in. He's looking around. He goes into her bathroom to take a piss because he drank shitty beer. He blames it on the beer. And then he flushes that toilet right as Sandy is. Honk, honk. Which I thought was actually kind of funny. Like, wow. I'm like, this reminds me of. of, That scene specifically reminded me of Twin Peaks. Yeah. With the the Scooby gang. Yeah. Laura Flynn Boyle and uh, I forget the other... uh, God, who else was a part of that? The teenagers who keep trying to solve uh, the murder of um, Laura Palmer and just leave this trail of destruction and and dead people behind them because they're just... They're not, they're not good at this. They're not, they're good, not good at, at it. And they just keep kind of do this, keep doing this thing where they uh, they think they find clues and they jump to conclusions and then they just sort of mess things up. And in this case, it's Jeffrey, he doesn't know the first thing about conducting an investigation, but he's very pleased with himself at doing yes. this. And then, you know, I'm going to use the bathroom. And so he the also is a 20-year-old boy who mm-hmm. thinks that this is a totally reasonable thing for him to be doing. Right? right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's while after this... Okay, so so he's in the apartment, and she's going up with the yellow man. Right. And he doesn't know, because he did have to go to the bathroom and then flush that toilet. And he is still looking around, checking things out, and then the lock in the door. The lock in the door, and he freaks out, and he runs, and he closes himself in the closet in the living room, which is a weird place to put this kind of closet, but that's fine. This whole apartment is laid out super weird. Um, I shouldn't be surprised. What are we watching? We're watching a David Lynch movie. Everything looks bananas. The color schemes, the wall coloring is... It's not as garish as some of his other stuff, Mm. but it is is in the surreal, you know... 
And she goes to the bathroom, undresses, so we do see her nude from behind, and then comes back out to get a robe, I think. And he does hide so mm-hmm. she doesn't catch him then. Then he goes back to the door and, and looks out the little slats again and in doing that knocks a hanger to the floor. And she goes to the bath or goes to the kitchen, grabs a knife, and then like assaults him. Doesn't assault, she almost assaults him. She forces him out of the closet at gunpoint, asks what he's seen. He does say you went in the back and got dressed. Mm-hmm. Or got undressed, and she's like, "Well, you see me now. I'm gonna see you strip the fuck down." Right. And she makes him take off all of his clothes, uh, down to his undies. Or yes. does he get totally nude? I, I think he's just to remember. I think the suggestion is that he's actually. And then she does get in front of him and does maybe almost goes down on him, and then Frank's at the door. Right. And she's like, "You need to hide in there. If you make any fucking noise." I'm going to kill you. And she keeps, like, threatening him and trying to seduce him at the same time. Right. It's this mishmash of violence and sex, which is her whole existence at this point. Yeah. It's this mishmash of violence and sex. And then we are introduced to Dennis Hopper, second time in four movies or five movies, that we get a Dennis Hopper uh, appearance. I don't know if he'll be in more. I have not thought ahead, but it wouldn't surprise me. He does take to t- tend to take the movie or roles in what I would refer to as thrilling movie. He comes in and he is deeply unhinged, a drug addict, apparently a drug dealer. Uh-huh. That's his profession. Right. Uh, he's also a drug doer, a rapist, and he does... I'm going to go ahead and say he rapes Isabella Rosalina's right. character. He rapes Dorothy Valen. There are several scenes of sex in this movie. None of them are long, and none of them are comfortable. <laughs> like, I think that given the time that it was released, this is the reason why there were theaters refusing to show it. And yeah. Protest, um, because it was this particular. Yeah. This is the scene that you thought that I had seen in right. this abnormal cycle. But inside. it wasn't yeah. the scene. Weirdly, um, it was the 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 scene outside the car later. Right. I don't even know how if I want to describe what happens here. Well, we don't have to go into detail. I mean, if you so Frank has a sexual fetish that involves. Blue velvet, literal blue velvet. The robe that Isabella Rossellini has changed into is a blue velvet robe. Okay. Uh, The huffing of a substance from a gas mask and canister that he carries on his person, which David Lynch originally had written into the script for it to be helium so that Mm -hmm. his voice would be high because he does then turn into this baby character. Yes. Um, But... Hopper, Dennis Hopper, uh, what one might charitably call, be call, or call a an experienced user of drugs, was like, Mm-mm, helium won't do, like, won't make this. Like, 
helium's not going to... All helium does is change your voice. It doesn't do anything... To the chemistry to of your To your chemistry of your brain, right. to your thought patterns or processes. Um, which is why it's okay to suck a helium balloon, because it's funny. Right. You're not getting high off of it, right? He's like, don't worry, I know what's in there. And he didn't tell David Lynch. And for a long time... Nobody knew what the fuck it was. Or, like, people who've done the mm-hmm. drugs probably were like, oh, I know what that is. Uh, on a subsequent, maybe a 20th anniversary release of this, um, Hopper uh, did say that it was supposed to be amyl nitrate, uh, which is a, a club drug that was fairly popular in the, uh, in the 70s and 80s. I have never done it. I do not know. It is sort of also a surrealist mystery drug. Like, it is just a yeah. drug that makes him act like this. Don't fucking worry about it. Uh, he gets, ex- like, he huffs it a lot. Like, he does a lot of uh, inhalations on, on this gas mask. And then he gets extremely manic. Um, he, and then he does, there's a verbal sort of outburst and then he does rape her. It's it's a rape that lasts 25 seconds. Right. It, and he slaps her because she's not allowed to look at him. So he is physically violent towards her uh, in addition to the rape. Right. Which is physical violence. Um, but it's all over. Like the whole, that whole scene lasts three minutes maybe. It is a deeply unsettling three minutes and I don't know what I would have done. I Certainly in 1986 I wouldn't have sat in the theater to watch this. I was right. six years old. That, that's, my parents were bad. They weren't like that though. Um, but if I had been my age sitting in a theater and seeing this, I, I might have been like, mm-hmm, and we're done. <laughs> I'm going to go home and I don't need to see this anymore. I don't know. But once he is done, he's done. He leaves. And then Dorothy sort of curls up on the couch and cries. And does does he come out and have another interaction with her then, or does he just kind of sneak off? He does, and he... Is that when she... He's trying to comfort her, and she wants him to hit her. Right. And that's one of the things that I think is really puzzling to me about the film. When I first saw it years ago... Yeah. And I... um, because I didn't see it when it first came out. I saw it sometime afterward. Yeah. And well, was, you would have only been 16, still too young, or 17, yeah. still too young, I think, to see this film. Um, I was, and certainly growing up the way that you did, as sheltered yeah. as you did. There. Well, I was really puzzled by it, because yeah. there are... Um, it's such a weird sort of world that he makes. Yeah, it's, it is. And, and the, the blending of some things, like... Dorothy's character is a masochist. She uh-huh. wants to be dominated uh-huh. and she wants to be hit during sex. Now, that is separate from. Right. Or, or that's the thing, you don't know. That could be yeah. her regular dynamic and what she wants from any sexual partner that she has. Or she could be trying to punish herself for still wanting to have sex with somebody who is not her husband. My feeling was that it could have been some kind of Stockholm Syndrome. Like she's identified or she's now, this is her... Because I don't know that she was this way with her husband. 
We don't know. Right. We don't know. We don't know. know anything about that. We're dropped into this situation. That's the thing. Like her. she doesn't tell Frank to hit her because she doesn't have to. He's going to. He's going but to. she does look at him, mm-hmm. knowing that that's going to provoke that that response. Right. But that just might be her sexual kink. Right. That is a and so I not uncommon thing for people to be interested and in. Stockholm syndrome might be the inaccurate term to use. Oh, right. But um, a thing where she's just been programmed she's like She's been this programmed is... after constant abuse to mm-hmm. expect this, and this is now what she wants. Because we also don't know really how long this has been going on. Right. Um, so she, she wants comfort from Jeffrey, but mm-hmm. she wants it in the form of him hitting her, and he doesn't want to do that. And then he leaves, and he gets comforted by Sandy. She goes home. They go home. And we find out, basically, that Frank has kidnapped Dorothy's husband, Don, and her son, Donnie, to force her to be compliant to him in this way. Okay. And Jeffrey believes that he that, that that was Don's ear that she cut, that he cut off is a as a warning to keep her compliant. Now, how it ended up in the field, I don't know, because you'd think you'd send that in a box. Right. Uh, it's also possible he cut it off in front of her, because we do see later that she knows where, the, where at least her son's being kept. Uh-huh. We don't. Is her husband dead? Not at this point. And she, he kind of lays this out to Sandy, and she's like, let's go tell my dad. And he's like, I can't tell him, because I don't have any proof, and everything I got was because I broke into this house. And I'm mm. like, well, if you knew that everything that you learned was going to be fruit of the poison tree, why did you poison the tree by breaking into this bitch's house? Mm. Like, is that just youth and inexperience? Like, I, I think don't... he was also trying to keep from saying the fact that he had started some kind of relationship mm-hmm. with Dorothy. Because as the movie goes on, he is seeing both of these women. And Sandy, the, the sad thing is that Sandy has a boyfriend. Sandy, ha- well, until she sees he, go- she, he goes to pick her up one day, and Mike sees them, and then they are not together anymore because she is going to be with him. Mm-hmm. But he is also going over yeah. to Dorothy's house. They are having sex, and he does hit her. He doesn't like it, though. He doesn't like doing it. He doesn't like what he thinks it means about him. Which, guys, if someone asks you to hit them in a... First of all, have that conversation before you're actually having sex with somebody. Let's do a little sex tips with anything. It's a conversation before, not a conversation during. Well, it couldn't be a conversation during, but this wasn't even a conversation. It was hit me. Hit me, hit me, hit me. That's what she just kept saying that to him. smacks the hell out of her. And he does. And he doesn't know what he's doing because there is a way to do that safely Mm -hmm. and sanely that both parties can enjoy. Um... What happens there isn't. It probably actually appeals to her because she has brought this out in him. Yeah. It doesn't appeal to him. He has nightmares about it later. Right. Um, I mean, David Lynch, the way that he does this is really interesting. He takes this very kind of evocative shot of Isabella Rossellini's mouth. Yeah. And then after he, Jeffrey's, you know, Back, he backhands her. Backhands her. Which her, is not, that's not how, guys, that's one not. One of her teeth is chipped. Is chipped, that's right. And it's like, that's how hard he hit her. Yeah. And so I think that's the image that stays in his mind, and he's having nightmares yeah. about it, because he's balancing out um, 
in film noir, which is really what this is. This is a film noir. It's just um, a surreal version of that, yes. There's usually the good girl and bad girl dynamic. There's the, the, the girl right. who's going to save you and the girl who's trouble. And there's Jean Tierney who's off to take you, drag you to hell. And then there's the good girl who's, you know, there's any number of actresses who played that part really well. Teresa Wright or whoever. But um, in this one, the difference is where it felt more like um, one of Hitchcock's suspense movies, like, for instance, Vertigo, is having the lead character discover something about himself. And at this point... Um, In this case, what he discovers about himself is he is not a sadist. He no, is not interested in He discovers in this. he's not a sadist, but at one point, uh, he Frank confronts him and says, you're like me. You know? Yeah. He does, and that's something that happens almost immediately. Well, immediately afterwards, but after this scene, we have yes. So there is the scene where they are together. We know uh, they're together, and then one of the times, and we don't. It's unclear how how many times he goes to her apartment. Right. Could be just the one, or it could be on yeah. and on. like time doesn't exist really in this movie in a in a coherent way. Um. So. Jeffrey is leaving Dorothy's apartment one day when Frank is showing up. Yeah. It's not... It's inevitable. It's not an ideal situation. Yes, in the time before cell phones, when people would just show the fuck up. Uh, oh, but he has been, like, sn- spying, snooping. He's seen Frank at the club. He's seen Frank with the yellow man, so he knows that they're right. um, related to each other. They're in coats. In cahoots, yes, exactly. And at that point, Frank forces both of them to go with him. In my, this is my favorite part of the movie. Uh, and I'm like, well, you're probably going to be straight murdered in a field somewhere, but we'll see. Uh, he's not. Kyle McLaughlin makes it through this whole movie mostly unscathed. Uh, he does get his ass kicked, but he kind of fucking deserves it. <laughs> um... And he, Frank forces forces both uh, Jeffrey and Dorothy to get into the car, and they're going for a ride. They're going to go see Donnie. They're going to he's going to let her see her son. Right. So they visit <laughs> the the Wikipedia article refers to it as the lair <laughs> of Ben. Ben is Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell is in this movie for one scene, and it is spectacular. It is so weird. (laughs) And he's a criminal associate. He is effeminate. He is wearing makeup, but a suit. He is drinking a martini, I believe, at the beginning, but then they do drink, end up drinking beer. Um, because that's what Frank wants to drink. Uh, and... P-B-R. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so, Chosen Jeffrey likes jo- Miller Genuine Draft, I believe, is his his right. beer of choice, which is what he is cursing when he is pissing in what's her face apartment. Right. Um... When Frank asks what kind of beer, he says that, and he's like, no, it's PBR, PBR. And so they go upstairs to this apartment. They have brought beer. Um, 
they demand that it is poured for them. Uh, by they, I mean, if this is Frank demanding yeah. this. He's taking various husks off of his... His little can His canister. Wonders. And he forces Jeffrey to listen to Ben do... Listen, watch. It's a, it's a visual. Yeah. Do an impromptu sort of lip-sync karaoke situation to Roy Orbison's In Dreams, which makes Frank cry. I don't understand how Frank is the... I guess it's because he could snap and straight murder you at any <laughs> moment, and that's how he keeps people in line, because I'm like, he's really... Well, Frank is not alone. He's accompanied by a couple of his thugs. He's got thugs and goons, but why are none of these thugs and, thugs and goons waiting for him to take an extra strong hit off that thing and just clonk him on the back of the I, head? Well, I... He's also, probably... They prob- somebody probably tried, and he's probably dead. Right. <laughs> That's probably what happened, because this dude probably has scary strength and reserves, and he's been doing this for long enough that he's not as incapacitated as you think he is. And I think he's extremely incapacitated. Brad Dourif is, we should mention. Yes. Is one of his crazy-eyed... Uh, Brad Dourif doesn't have another way to be. Right. He's, he's a crazy-eyed individual. There's nothing he can do about it. It's his eyes. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that, that, that whole... That scene is so weird. Even, uh, even watching it now. Because the first time I saw it, I'm like, what the hell is this about? Because... Like he's what is is uh excuse me oh the it's a, yeah it would been an hour so yeah what is Dean Stockwell's character and why is he the best side character other than special not special eds double eds right those are my three favorite side characters well yeah that's one of the fun and you know he doesn't come back one of the fun things about um. He's a person who doesn't mind you holding a hostage in his bare room. Right. Because that's basically what, that this is where Frank is keeping yeah. Don and Don and Donnie. And you hear some from the other room of, of course I love you. Like her kid is clearly traumatized because no shit. Right. <laughs> um, and it's like, when am I going to get to go home? And that is unclear. Yes, unclear. She's unclear. put off into a room and then, uh, Jeffrey is, Given a performance, and uh, Frank drinks to fuck. Yes, like that—that—that's what he wants to toast to. It's very weird. He's a broken man. Yes. And then once they—they—they they, they do, she comes out. She's crying. <coughs> Excuse me. And then they do go on like a very high. They—he's Frank is driving over a hundred miles an hour to the mm-hmm. sawmills, and this is the scene that I was shown. In my abnormal side class, uh, they are outside, and he try. He's grabbing at uh, Frank is grabbing at Dorothy's breasts, mm-hmm. I believe, and Jeffrey can't keep, yeah can't keep it together and says, "Leave her alone!" and punches him. From the backseat of a car. You know, what's funny is that 
even watching that, we were watching it. I, I, there's this like gasp that you. I was like, that's a terrible idea. That's just a terrible idea. I understand the impetus. That was a terrible idea. You have now doomed both of you because you can't overcome him and the goons that are there. That you've made it worse for everyone. Right. And he is pulled out of the vehicle. Uh, and then Frank smears red lipstick over his mouth mm -hmm. and kisses Jeffrey all over his face. Right. And then beats the living shit out of him, and Jeffrey wakes up in the field the next morning. Now, what, according to your abnormal sight class that you were... I don't remember what... I don't know. What was their diagnosis? Mm -mm. Nope. <laughs> I it, think it may have been something having to do with um, psychosis caused by an intake of substance. Just right. substance intake. Um, so, this is another thing that um, is true. So, Hey everybody, I live in California and uh, there are certain drugs that are recreationally illegal here and mm -hmm. I partake in them. Not all the time, not every day. Um, as one would have a cocktail or whatever, mm -hmm. that is how I partake in them. I don't begrudge anybody their drug use, typically, if they can do the drug and maintain a lifestyle that it makes them and the people around them happy and fulfilled. And safe. And safe. <laughs> do it safe. Do, do whatever thing you want to do. But a high-dose chronic use of almost any substance that alters your brain chemistry the way that drugs do, be it an opiate, be it a hallucinogen, be it marijuana, or mm -hmm. cannabis, excuse me, uh, be it cannabis, can cause a psychotic break right. in certain individuals. The way that exposure to certain chemicals can cause cancer in certain susceptible individuals where it wouldn't in other people. Mm. That is just a, just a true thing. Right. That's just what it is. Um, and so I believe that is what we were studying, was a susceptible mind's uh, penchant for psychosis in the face, or caused by these chemical caused by ingesting in whatever form these chemicals. Uh, I think that's probably what it was. But okay. like I said, it was 20-some years ago. <laughs> it was one day of a class. So get some sort of answer as to what his problem There is no answer to what his problem is, mm -hmm. because this is a surrealist film. This isn't... David Lynch wrote these behaviors uh -huh. based on David Lynch's brain. Okay. And, 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 and not Anthony. And... Uh, Dennis Hopper acted them as on the paper, as he spoke with Lynch, as he had experienced these drugs in his own life and in those around him in a heightened and surrealist way. This is not the way that it's going to manifest for anyone, probably, except this person or this, you know what I mean? But, you know. I wonder if it was partly inspired or the more manic parts of it or his behaviors or gestures were inspired by people that he knew. Oh, maybe. Very possibly. You know, yeah. He, he uh, when this film was around the time that he gave up his uh, drug use. Yes. 
And uh, he had some very interesting stories talking about his time. Yeah, and his like the likelihood with Ven- with Venicopa specifically is, if he had continued that drug use, he would have died well before he did die. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, because I've he al- wasn't subtle about it, it wasn't. No. Yeah. I've often wondered about that. It's like, is this somebody that you need? Very possibly, and maybe he'll never. Will I mean, we'll never know if he didn't write it down somewhere that we'll will discover. Right. But he also may have wanted to keep people's private lives private. Like he doesn't right. need to put anybody on blast. No, no. Especially on a thing that he made money off of. Like, right. that's, I, that doesn't seem like, he, he seems like actually like a really decent person. Mm-hmm. As, as batshit as he is in a lot of his roles, he's hired repeatedly, which makes me think that him as a person right. is a person that you would not be afraid to be around. His characters? Absolutely. No. <laughs> no, thank you. But Dennis Hopper's a person? Yeah. Cool I, and chill to hang out I with. Think he, Maybe not chill, but... He might have a lot... Of, or might have. He must have had a lot of really interesting stories. Yeah. Uh, yes, ab- I'm sure. About it, because his career started with James Dean. Yeah. And Natalie Wood and this, that whole... That whole... Brat pack yeah. there. And then ends in the 90s. Yeah. And so... Um, and there was a huge dip in his career where he was unhirable because of his drug use. Yeah. And then he comes back with stuff like this. And, and so, yeah, and it's, it's interesting. He wasn't the first choice for the part. Really? Do you know who was? Michael Ironside. Interesting. I don't know that we would have gotten as manic. Yeah, I don't think we would have gotten manic. Michael Ironside, who was an actor I liked when I was a kid, he was a great villain, is a real tough guy. Also bigger. Yeah. Significantly bigger. Big... Dennis Hopper is... Yeah. Scary and small. Right. <laughs> you know well, what I mean? He makes up for his lack of size by his energy. You know, it's like one of those, uh, you don't trap this animal because it's going to turn on you and it's going to attack really violently. But Michael Ironside, and apparently there were another choice was, um, good Lord, what was his name? Harry Dean Stanton was another choice. Oh, that would have been nice, actually. He's very wiry and could be very scary. But he's yeah. so chill to me. Yeah, uh, that's that's Harrington Stanton. I, I would be interested to see him doing it. But I think Dennis Hopper got the right amount of menace and crazy for it. Uh, and it's interesting that you, when we talked about the scenes with um, Dorothy, yeah, Balance, yeah, where she's alternately trying to seduce and and um, and taunt, taunt, yeah, Jeffrey. It was really close to the performance that her mother gave. Ingrid Bergman has a whole set of uh, scenes in both Anastasia and in... Um, uh, I'm sorry. It just escaped I'm going to be of no use because I've never seen an Ingrid Bergman film. So. It's uh, the film uh, Gaslight. Oh, I have. I'm a liar because I've seen Gaslight. And in Gaslight, when she's talking to Charles Boyer and she's trying to advocate for herself that she's not crazy. Right. And her lips start trembling and her eyes. 
And there's moments when Ingr- when Isabella Rossellini in this movie is doing the like she's she's channeling her mother. I mean, she absolutely going, is. Holy cow, she is. Just... She's definitely that's definitely one of the reasons that right. he hired her, yeah. right? Other than she's, I mean, she's one of the most beautiful women to be and put on film ever. What's strange is that this film is really unflattering to her. Oh yeah, the way she's photographed. Yep, is which re- is why her agents. Uh-huh dropped her after right. this film came out, I mean, which is the, hot garbage. The comment that when she first appeared on film, you thought she looked like, what was it, Rocky Horror? No, not Rocky Horror, Frankenfurter. Frankenfurter. The, well, the, in the, in the trailer, because we watched the trailer, uh-huh. which is wild. If I can pull the audio for the trailer, I might do that. It is, I love watching old trailers. I'm like, we just did. We just had these? Okay. This was how we got people to go to a movie? I don't uh-huh. understand it. Uh, and the first time you see her with her hair just feathered back, uh-huh. dark and back away from her face, and the bright red lips, I was, it, she looked so much like Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror Ooh. that I was, like, deeply confused. And then I was like, oh, no. Sorry, no offense, Tim Curry, but she is stunningly beautiful, but she is garishly portrayed right. every time we see her. She's bleeding or she's made up to be this doll, this singing doll, yeah. or this sex doll. Um, her makeup is smeared across her face a lot of the time. Like, yeah. we're about to see her blood bruised and bloody. She is not killed in the scene. I, I, he did make it worse for them by punching Frank in the face, but he didn't get them killed. Um, so let's get back to the... the okay. You want to get back to the plot? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Jeffrey... Wakes up in the field, gets himself, goes get up and goes to the police station where he does realize that Detective Williams, Sandy's dad, his partner, Tom Gordon, is the yellow man. So now, what can he say? What can he say? He still has no... He, here's the thing. At this point, he has evidence. He has actionable evidence. He has been at this woman's house in a in a way that she would confirm his his. Uh, she would maybe say he broke in first, right. but the day that they were abducted, she knew he was there. Let him in. They did what they did, and then they had these experiences together. He knows where her husband and child are. Yeah. He knows who took them and who's holding them. Actionable, all actionable stuff. It, we're no longer talking about fruit of the poisonous tree, and um, he. Do, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Well, he's trying to go to the police at this point because he realizes he's way in over his head. Yes. He just got the hell beaten out yeah. of him. Yeah. And so he wants to go now that he knows what it is. But when he gets to the police um, station, station, he sees the yellow man who has been. So. So the police, the yellow man, uh, the, his bouncer, has been murdering rival drug dealers and then stealing their drugs from the evidence locker so that Frank can sell them. Yeah. Which is, hey guys, put better locks on your evidence room. How are you not noticing that large quantities of drugs go missing? regularly. Yeah, it, it, it <laughs> must just be, or the logic I would use was that you know he was the investigating officer or whatever, 
So he gets to see the evidence when he likes. Of course, I don't know if that's the way that it works. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, so he uh, bounces. And then he and Sandy are still also trying to just date like teens. And uh, they go to a party. Uh, they tell each other that they love each other. They've known each other for either two days or three they months. They've known each other for it's a long time. fully unclear. Growing up. Oh, did they? Because he remembers her. Oh, okay. So you, but no, because they're they they've known of each other. Right. Because well, she so. said, "Weren't you a senior when I was a freshman?" Right. Or something like that. So there's, yeah. you know what I mean? Like I know who you are, and you maybe knew who I was because you have a a cop fetish or something. Right. You're a hard on for my dad. Uh, and when they go to leave, they are followed and. Um, rammed from behind by a vehicle and we think, everybody thinks, oh no, it's Frank. He's going to get him. But y'all, it is not Frank. It is an angry Mike. Mike, her ex-boyfriend who has decided he's going to kick Jeffrey's ass. And would do, except they pull up to... What I didn't understand when they were being tailed and bashed from behind by a who they thought was Frank, who's definitely armed, right, at this point? Like, right. why would you not drive to the police station? I don't know. He's not going to follow you to the police station. He's got an ally there, but not everybody there is an ally, and we can clearly see you doing an illegal thing. Your ally there is not going to be able to cover that over for you. I believe that you should, and I, here's the thing, I don't believe in the police. I think that they're terrible 99% of the time. But if you are being harassed by a car that is trying to drive you off the road, or you think you're being followed, go to the police station. They will likely stop following you. They will go away, and then you can make a report or whatever. But he goes to his own house, which is the stupidest thing he could do, because now this motherfucker knows where you live. Right. Well, I, <laughs> tells me they all know where everybody, everybody knows where everybody lives because what stop? Well, it is Mike and a couple of his buddies, and they are planning to beat the shit out of Jeffrey. And Sandy's like, "No, Mike, no." <laughs> and Jeffrey is like, "I mean, I guess I have to punch this dude, this child, whatever." And, but except maybe not because uh, Dorothy does appear on his porch, nude and bruised, at which point Mike is like, uh, we're not, I'm not, mm-mm, didn't sign up for this. He starts apologizing, <laughs> and that's interesting, because I wondered what that was, what... I think it really was a situation where his 17-year-old brain started just going, I don't understand what's happening, and I shouldn't be here. Right. I and shouldn't he, have done this. I, I think also he clicked back into, you can't run somebody off the fucking road and right. then beat the shit out of them. Now, that's not a thing you can do. Stop yeah. it. And so I think that's a big part of it, where he's just like, uh, I, this, it was, uh, that was fucked up. I'm so sorry. I don't want any part of whatever this is. We'll be seeing ourselves. Yeah, apparently that was part of David Lynch's own experience, that he and his brother walking down a street at night uh, saw a naked woman wandering down the street toward them. Mm -hmm. And that's really traumatized him. 
like he didn't know what to make of that, so that's probably him projecting a little bit of his own past into the Mike's character. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um, they get her, get Dorothy in the car. She's very confused that she keeps calling Jeffrey her secret lover and asking him to hold her. And Sandy's like, what the fuck is going on? Because she does not know that they've ever spoken to each other, right. let alone any of the other things that they've done. And... Um, but she does drive the car to her dad's or you know, to her house to get her medical attention. And then after she's being taken care of, he, Sandy does slap the shit out of Jeffrey. It's very satisfying. Um, and then finally they tell Detective Williams what the fuck's been going on. Uh, at which point there is a raid on Frank's headquarters where um, all of his men's all of his men are killed. Um, and while Detective Williams goes to Frank's, uh, Jeffrey goes to Dorothy's apartment. I'm unclear why. Okay, so... Um, I know what he finds there. That's yeah. why I do remember what happens to her husband. It's so upsetting. The, what the, what he finds in Dorothy's apartment, he had to walk up five, seven flights of stairs to get to, is the yellow man standing in the room, inert, because he has been literally brained. He has a wound on his head through which his brain is swollen through. You can yeah. see this man's brain. And tied to a chair on the on another side of the room is Don. He is dead. One ear. That's how you know it's him. I don't remember what his wound is. Maybe a maybe a bullet. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And the yellow man, Tom Gordon, the corrupt cop, um, is not dead. I mean, technically, he's not dead. For all intents he's and purposes, he's not going to have a continued life. Right there, we are. But he is not at the moment. I am not totally as of this dead. dead. However, I am not quite going to. I'm not quite he's alive. Basically, in a state of frozen animation. Mm. There is no. Healing him. That, he just has to finish dying. That's, that scene, uh, yeah, he's transitioning <laughs> he's tra into yeah. a dead person. It's just a longer um, time than just, huh, and then we're dead. Like it is. It's a whole. I that scene. I think situation. is one of the more interesting compositions that David Lynch. It's pulled actually on. gorgeous, except the brain. The brain. You can see his brain. It's so my stomach hurts. Because it looks like a really weird still life. I'm like, yes, it is because everything is still because right. he is basically frozen. Right, right, and so Jeffrey goes in and is like, "Okay, well, I'm not fucking needed here. Both of these <laughs> men are out of the equation, so I'm gonna go." Except he cannot go because coming up the only stairway out is Frank in what do they call it? Like a businessman outfit. Well-dressed man, well man yeah. uh, costume is what it is. And he's got 
a, some sort of wig on. Mm-hmm. He's got a fake mustache. I believe he's got like glasses or sunglasses. And then he's wearing a suit that is not like the suits that he wears. It is very bizarre, but it's apparently how he got out of his layer. Mm-hmm. He had a layer too, you guys. Not only then. And so Jeffrey can't come down the stairs because Frank is coming up. And I didn't understand why when he saw Frank at the bottom of the stairs several flights up, he didn't just take a beeline into one of the other, like, go into the fifth floor, wait for Frank to go up, and then go down. But he doesn't do that. He goes back into the apartment where there's no out because it's the seventh fucking floor. (laughs) So he, um, and he grabs the walkie-talkie out of the yellow man's jacket because he's a cop. He's got a walkie-talkie on him. He picks it up and he, he knows Frank's coming. He's locked the door, but he knows he's going to get in. And so he radios for help. But he hears feedback on the line, so he also knows that Frank has a walkie-talkie, so he knows he's hearing what he's saying. So he says, I'm in the back bedroom, please help. Please come as fast as you can, please help. And then he hides in the closet in the front room with Tom's gun, which also had gone off because it was in his hand. Uh He's just standing there with his arm outstretched with a gun in his hand, so he must have shot Don. With this pulsing brain, it's not actually pulsing, that was in my head, but that's what it feels like, that there's this pulsing brain, right? And it does go off, because he, like, gets jostled enough to, like, have a second of, like, lucidity before, Uh like, kind of going inert again, and he does fire that weapon, but then uh, Jeffrey takes it from him and hides in the closet. And then Frank comes in, has heard that he's in the back room, is taunting him and yelling at him and going, he's like, I know you're here, come out, like, this is, you're a fucking idiot, like, this, that, and the other, and then, um, he does end up being able to jump out and surprise him, because he's not where he said he was going to be, and he does shoot Frank, and Frank does die, and then right after that, Detective Williams and Sandy both come into the apartment and then they arrive to help or whatever. And then we see like a flash forward. We don't know how long the time has gone by, but we see that Jeffrey and Sandy are together. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jeffrey's father is out of the hospital and doing pretty well, it looks like. And Dorothy is reunited with her son, who seems remarkably well-adjusted and won't need any therapy at all. Both of them should be in therapy, like, literally every day for at least a year. A year would be conservative for me. Uh, I'm, every day for a year, and then we can reevaluate. Yeah. <laughs> and that is it. That is the movie. No, uh, uh, you know what I like? Nobody's ever said, you know what could a sequel? <laughs> No, I think this told the story it needed to tell. Yes, it, it feels that way. Now, um, was it thrilling? It's, um, it was, I think, for me. I think so, too. It's, I it's, am glad that I watched it. It's hard to say. I'm glad that I watched it at home under, uh, in my control own... Control circumstances. Control circumstances. Right. I was, remember we talked about 
substances, I was high. I wasn't like bonkers high, but I was like, I need to be a little bit more relaxed than I currently have to watch this. Because it is, it does keep its pace up. Uh It's not too long. I didn't feel like he dropped me in an ocean of what the fuck and didn't give me a raft, which is how I feel with all the, you know, his two other films that I'd seen, where I was just dropped into this place of fucking swim or drown, and I'm like, well, glub, 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 I guess, because I don't know what the fuck this even is. Um, And I don't know what I'm supposed to get out of it. I feel like I got out of it at least some of what he wanted me to get out of it, right. which is not a feeling that I've had with his other works. So, um, yeah, y'all, Blue Velvet. Don't huff anything. That's really bad for your brain. It kills off your brain cells, and they don't come back super quick. I, um, yeah, I, I always thought this was his most narratively lucid piece of work. I can follow... Scene to scene to Even scene more to than scene the Elephant Man? Uh, well, I don't count the Elephant Man really as... Um, it's not something that he wrote, I don't think. And he had different producers working with him who were assuring him, or rather pressing him on this different direction. This was a David Lynch written and directed film. So it, uh, it, it really has a feeling of being one of his films. At the same time, being mainstream enough to where I can understand it. It doesn't get bogged down with uh, all... Well, one of the things I was going to say earlier is that it's always fun to watch his his side characters. Sometimes they're more entertaining than the main characters in some of his films. Well, a lot of it, too, I think, is because every one of the characters that he writes any dialogue at all for is a character. Right. And in a lot of cases, all I can take of that character is two to five minutes. Right. So a a side of Dean Stockwell is delightful. If that was the main baddie, that'd be rough. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's what it is. It's how much of who can we take? And a lot of times I cannot take as much of the ones that I get a lot of as, like... Dorothy was really treading a line for me. And I don't think that's Isabella Rossellini's fault. I think for her first film especially, she was spectacular with what she was given. It was a lot to ask of the audience to take all of that in, especially juxtaposed against Sandy. Now, in 1986, that might not have been as much the case. But me looking at it, I'm like, really, we're just going to straight up do Madonna and whore? And we're going we're gonna to put this whore on her, even though she has been forced into sex slavery with the abduction of her child? Like, that's really what we're going to do? And yeah, that's really what we're going to do. And so that's a little... Well, there was no nuance to Dorothy Bell. No. And that's not Isabella's fault. That is David Lynch's fault. What I was going to say is that sometimes the... Supporting characters are more interesting than the main characters. But in this case, I felt like the main characters, like Dorothy, kept me guessing, like, what is it with her? Mm-hmm. Even watching it the second time, what is Frank's problem? Yeah. Is there, what on earth makes a person become this? And also, what you've got to kind of do, too, for this is zoom out uh-huh. a little bit and think, this is the drug, or the drug and crime psycho kingpin for... 
Lumberton, North Carolina, or right. wherever it is. Anywhere that it is. It is he is so small time. Mm-hmm. He is like the biggest fish in the tiniest pond. Right. <laughs> and so taking taking that into the fact that there's a lounge singer in this town is a well, little wild, right? It like he, he's assembling, David Lynch is assembling images from things that please him or that he's uh, he's been attracted to for over the years. There's mm-hmm. the lumber town, which we see coming up again in Twin yep. Peaks. Yep, yep, yep. And then there's a lounge singer. And then there's the boy detective. Which we also saw. And yeah, there's a lot of boy, yeah, boy detective and, uh, vibes. The, the uh, art direction and stuff. Well, his, I mean, that is where I think he shines, where he just, yeah. stills from David Lynch films are disarming. Right. I don't, I don't know that they're particularly my jam visually, like mm-hmm. I'm not gonna right. put it as a background, but they are very visually interesting, and they do make you go, whoa, what? <laughs> there's, um, the, there's an opening montage of like scenes from Lumbertown. Uh, and there's a closing montage of scenes from Lumbertown. And both of them involve, for no particular reason, a very uh, kind of old-fashioned fire truck and a fireman standing on the outside of the fire truck and waving yeah. directly at you. Yeah. And that happens at both of the It's the like an ad for Lumberton. Right. You know what I mean? It's like um visit our small town. Right, exactly. For our, you know, milk and eggs parade or whatever. <laughs> whatever. Like what? <laughs> it's not milk and eggs there though, it's no. lumber and lumber. Wood and paper. pulp and paper. <laughs> and I I am um, I'm kind of uh, amazed but how well this film Still holds up. Okay, you want to drink something and clear that a little bit? Sorry, that's just going to be rough to listen. All right. I'm amazed by how well this film still holds up. And um, is hard to watch at times still. Yeah. It still has that power when we get into... I know that when we got into watching Taxi Driver and things like that... Uh, when we did that, there was this, um, or, or, uh, deliverance. deliverance. There were scenes that were just. The Deer Hunter. Yeah, yeah the Deer Hunter. It was really hard to watch. The, the seven. It really was bringing the 70s into the 80s. And <laughs> it's going to be hard, uh, going forward when The Exorcist comes up. It's going to be hard next week. Yeah. So, yeah. Some of the things coming up are going to be, you know, a lot, for sure. Um, I know you keep defaulting to The Exorcist, um, so I and I've never seen it, uh-huh. but you're constantly like when The Exorcist comes up, and I'm wondering if I'm going to have the visceral reaction to it that you have, without the faith that you have. Well, I think the thing is that it's like we were talking about uh, Midnight Mass. Mm-hmm. There's the seeing actual objects of faith get essentially desecrated. Yes. And in Midnight Mass, it was done much more genteel and had kind of... And The Exorcist is supposed to make a point. This is what this... You know, it's based on an actual story. Um, This is more or less the kind of things that happen during an exorcism, these horrible things. But I remember the first time I saw it, and I saw it in broad daylight, (laughs) and I was already in my, what, 
40s, I think. <laughs> it was really funny. I, I saw it and, um, yeah, just the, the amount of vomit and goo and kind of that might get to you more than the seeing crucifixes uh, uh, getting um, desecrated. But, uh, but yeah, that's that one I'm gonna, I'm going to have a little bit of a hard time with, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, in actual reality, next week we are watching Full Metal Jacket, a movie both of us have seen. Mm-hmm. A 1987 Full Metal Jacket directed by Stanley Kubrick. And another auteur, uh-huh. less surreal, slightly. <laughs> yeah, the second half of this movie gets pretty surreal. So, that is the thing I would contend is that this Full Metal Jacket is like two, two, two movies in one. So, we will talk about that when we talk about that, but before we get to it, oh, and uh, Full Metal Jacket is going to be, is available right now for streaming on HBO Max. HBO Max has quite a few of these. I think a lot of it has mm. to do with the fact that they scooped a lot of the Criterion collection, yeah. and a lot of these are Warner Brothers films. So HBO has the Warner Brothers um, catalog. Right. So, or HBO Max has the, what I don't even know. Somebody owns it. It's probably like GE or something. Um, so that's what we're going to watch next week. Do you have anything you'd like to recommend in the meantime? Oh, also, that that episode might be late. I may put in a filler episode depending on how you're doing. Mm, okay. With your, We're going to try and record it before you go into surgery. Right. But the next couple of weeks might be a little hinky. We're going to okay. do our best to do regular drops, but just so you guys know. Uh, but something to recommend in the meantime that isn't Full Metal Jacket. Um, what I would recommend is I've, in the last couple of days, I have been watching the TV show Warrior, also on HBO Max. Also on HBO Max. Okay. Uh, which is a uh, a kind of a period crime drama, like uh, oh I don't know, it's similar to Peaky Blinders or um, there's a number of other shows, the the, the Alienist in a way, I guess. Although it's it's closer to Peaky Blinders in that it uses modern music and modern vernacular rather than actual authentic historical um, conversation, which can be hard to get through sometimes. And it's the story of a Chinese uh, immigrant who is coming to San Francisco to look for his sister, who was basically bought by a Tong leader to cover a debt. So her brother comes looking for her after her father's, their father's death. And uh, what intrigued me was the show was produced by uh, the Bruce Lee Enterprises. And it was apparently in the 1970s, or the, yes, the 70s when uh, Bruce Lee was between jobs, he was working with a producer to do a Western that he called an Eastern Western. It right. was going to be um, an Asian priest wandering the West, understanding Taoist values or spreading them to other people, and that eventually became the TV show Kung Fu. But uh, the there's a huge question about whether or not Bruce Lee was kept in the program because, or was uh, excised from 
this project because he was Chinese and the the producers felt that people were not ready for an Asian lead for an American television show. So he wound up very disappointed going back east and then becoming a superstar who's recognized all the way around the world. So um, this apparently was closer to what he had in mind. And it's it's not for everyone. It's really kind of violent. I'm excited to watch it. You blazed through it right. in two days. Like, it was crazy. I was like, what are you watching? And you were on episode three, and then I came out before we were getting ready to do this, and yeah. you're on episode eight, which is the last of the season. I was like, oh, damn, okay. Yeah. And apparently that's the last of the first season. There's a, a third season coming up. Um, I would warn people that watching it is that the film really, or the episodes really cover, there's a lot of sex in them. Because uh, one of the locations is a brothel, and there are there's a lot of like casual racism and violence. Yeah, because they are there was a lot of casual racism. San Francisco, and yeah. the Tong Wars, and the issues with both the Irish community, which was mm-hmm. I think the largest in in around Chinatown, other than the Chinese. Yeah, and uh, and they. Were most of the police and the um, I think the, the first season's ending with the guy who right the senator who's writing the Chinese Exclusion Act to keep the Chinese out of the country entirely. So if you're really sensitive to things like that, this might not be for you. However, it is really, really exciting. It's really well done, um, and there's a lot of really interesting characters that you can follow along with. Uh, yeah, it, it turned out to be really interesting. I I can't help but wonder at times, watching it. It's like looking at the lead guy going, if Bruce Lee had played that part, how would he do it dif- differently? Oh, see, I didn't have that problem because I looked at that lead guy and went, he's so hot. Who is that? That was my only response. Y'all, I'm a horrible person. I'm so sorry. Well, I yeah. didn't see any acting. I'm sure he's great, but I uh, I saw one scene with him and I was like, holy false that dude's good looking. <laughs> but there's that and there's a there's a lot of references to that. There's a character named uh, Bolo who's a callback to Bolo Jung who's uh, one of Bruce Lee's uh, who's an Enter the Dragon, this huge kind of mu- uh, muscular martial artist who fought Jean-Claude Van Damme too in two of his movies. And so there's interesting callbacks. There's all sorts of uh, really good production values. I like that. And it's also not a Western in the sense that Kung Fu was a Western. I'm glad that that show, Kung Fu, developed the way that it did. Because having the peaceful priest going, spreading Taoism, uh, was, uh, Buddhism and Taoism, was, um, was one thing. And this is a completely different kind of program. They probably had to alter it a little so that it wouldn't be uh, just a retread of the same idea. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I've enjoyed it a lot. Awesome. If, if you're okay with violence and sex, and this is this is a really fun show. Violence and sex are my favorite things. <laughs> do you have a? Uh, yeah, I'll do a dumb fun recommendation. Okay. Uh, we y'all uh, though get a, your social lubricant of choice to get you a little mellow because it's very tense. We watched a movie called Ice Road the other oh, yes. the Ice Road the other night. It's a Liam Neeson 
joint mm-hmm. um, with Amber Midthunder, an indigenous actor, and Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, you may have heard of him. And they are going to ice road. They are going to drive some heavy trucks over some thin ice, and it is stressful. Yeah. <laughs> At first I thought it was really similar to uh, The Wages of Fear. Yes, a oh, film I have George not Clouseau's seen. Film. Yeah. Um, at first, it was like that. Like the basic outline was, and the opening scenes were sort of uh, similar, and then it goes off in a different direction, and um, and I really enjoyed it. I I had a good time, and it's creepy. It's creepy watching all the things you can do to a uh, a semi truck, you know, on these roads, and to think that people actually cross them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a lot, but it was really fun. So I do recommend that one. It's on Netflix. Um, it's a short, uh, like 147, so I guess yeah. not short. But <laughs> My views are skewed because a lot of the things we were going to watch the other night were like two and a half, two and a half, two and a half. And I was like, I don't have two and a half hours in me. Uh, so that's pretty fun. Next week, once again, we are going to be watching Full Metal Jacket. Right. That's a war film, y'all. And it is a rough watch. We have both seen it. Full disclosure. I had to watch it in school. <clears throat> so, <laughs> that's what it shares with today's episode. Uh, and then we will be watching The China Syndrome. So, that is what's our upcoming. Uh, until then, uh, you can reach out. You can, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at latecomerspod, or you can find us on Facebook by searching the latecomers podcast in the search bar. And I would like to remind you, take your medicine. Take all your medicines. It's important. And we would like to remind you, better, better late, late than, than never. never.